My name is Wally Miller, and this is my wife, Debbie, without whom I would not be here this morning, I guarantee you. We want to read for you this morning's reading for Advent. Throughout church history, the church has celebrated the birth of Jesus with a several-week preparatory time known as Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word meaning to come. We celebrate that God came to us. Today is the second week of Advent, and we continue to prepare our hearts spiritually by focusing on the wonderful good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In just a moment, we are going to light a candle called the Candle of Joy. According to Luke, the first to rejoice in the birth of Jesus on the night that he was born were the shepherds. Scriptures record the shepherds were gathered outside of Bethlehem and were watching their sheep that night. Luke 2 verses 9 through 20 tell us, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. What wonderful news we can share in when we today hear again and again these wonderful words, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ our Lord.
I am Jeff Case. I'm one of your elders. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for the shepherds. Um, They're just kind of minding their own business, and um, what a night. Thank you so much um, that, God, you orchestrated just that part of the story from the beginning and how you, um, God, showed us how to rejoice through that story. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus in such a, such a humble way. God, as we um, anticipate um, celebrating Jesus and Christmas, Lord, we just, we just pray, God, that you just give us hearts like the shepherds. Um, God, pre- help prepare our hearts. God, give us, give us those, that joy um, that the angels proclaimed and the shepherds certainly had as they went to find Jesus. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would just, in our anticipation, give us joy in our preparation for all the festivities and everything we do this time of year, Lord. As we're preparing, Lord, I pray you'd give us joy. God, um, it's so easy to get distracted by the busyness and the tradition, Lord. Help us to rejoice in you and Jesus and celebrating the humble birth and the life that you set aside for for Jesus. And we just thank you so much. And I just pray, God, that as as we go into this time, as we continue anticipating Christmas, Lord, that, that you would just continually give us that joy in hope that we have for the coming of Jesus, that glorious day when he returns, that amazing time that we'll experience for eternity with with him, with you. God, we're so, so much to rejoice about. The blessings that you've given us, we're so blessed, Lord. And I just, I pray, God, in the busyness and the distraction and the tradition that that we would just remember to rejoice. Lord, help us to rejoice in you. And I pray, God, that um, in that, in our um, wanting to rejoice and in our thankfulness, Lord, that that you would um, show us how to love like Jesus loved. Lord, that'll be the way. I know you've done that so many times in my life to get the focus off myself is loving others, Lord. And I just, I pray, God, that like Jesus, by Jesus' example, through this power of your spirit in us, Lord, I just pray that we would love this holiday season. I pray, God, that you would help us to see beyond ourselves. Um, God, I pray for um, unity in this church. I pray that we would, um, through the love of, in us through the power of your spirit, Lord, that, that you would just build us to be stronger in our walk with you. Lord, I, I pray that, that we would in, build each other up to that joy, Lord, that, that you um, have given us through, through your spirit in us, Lord. And I pray, God, that that would explode outside the doors. I pray, God, that, that people would see us in this busy time and, and that they would um, 
inquire about the joy that we have in us. Lord, give us that joy. Thank you for that joy. Thank you for the, what we can be so rejoicing for. Lord, this morning, um, besides these things, we want to just lift up um, those that are hurting and lonely this time of year. Lord, I, I pray um, for Meredith and Clark's family um, with the loss of Meredith's granny this week. Lord, just be with that family. Um, be with Clark and Meredith's girls as they're experiencing this loss. This kind of thing is difficult for kids, um, for all of us. Lord, I just pray for them. Lord, I pray for Eli and the loss of his friend. I pray for his family. don't know a lot of details about that situation, Lord, but I just pray for your, your light and your glory in that situation and just comfort that family and Eli and Hannah. Lord, I just pray for others that are suffering loss. Lord, I just I pray, God, that, um, that you would um, just be with us this time of year. Um, Lord, I pray also that you'd be with our missionaries, those that are around the world serving, Lord, that aren't able to be home with us and be with their families, Lord. And I, I pray, God, um, for uh, Jill. I pray, God, that you would just be with her, comfort her, give her that joy we've, we've been talking about and praying for, Lord. I pray for um, the Masons and the Albies, Lord. I pray, God, as they get chances to celebrate Christmas in where they are. And um, God, I just pray for your light to shine brightly and for people to be interested in Jesus and what a joy he is. God, we thank you so much that you're here with us today. Lord, thank you that we can um, be here in this room together worshiping you. Lord, be with Pastor Brandon um, as he brings the message. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the kids are leaving, I'm going to tell a fun story. Um, as I think most of you guys know, Elise and I had a chance to go to Israel uh, this uh, late spring, early summer, before things got scary over there. And uh, we went to this place called the Herodium. And the Herodium is a, a fortress outside of Bethlehem um, in, in the Judean countryside. And it's way up on a hill. And we got to go up on this hill and look out and uh, you can see Jerusalem way off in the distance, but not quite so far in the distance as Bethlehem. And so as we were on top of this hill, uh, our, our tour guide talked to us about how one of those hills was the hill that the, the shepherds were out grazing their sheep and that the, the, the angels appeared to them. I just thought that was so cool to get to be up. We didn't know which one, but it was like one of those is the hill. Uh, and I thought that was, that was pretty cool. So as Wally was reading the, the Christmas story there and talking about those shepherds, that's where my mind went. It was, oh man, it was right there. It's a real place. And the thing that I loved about getting to go to Israel this year was so often we think of the Bible almost as a fairyland. Uh, but it's a real place. You can go. You can see these things where it happened. 
uh, and, and I just, that was pretty impactful for me. So uh, I, I just want to tell you guys that story as the kids were heading out for uh, Children's Church. Pray with me, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the message today. Lord, we, we thank you that your word is reliable, that it's trustworthy, that you wanted us to know you, and so you gave us your word through the prophets and the apostles. Lord, we thank you that you clothed yourself in humanity, the word become flesh and dwelt among us, that we may know you and the way to heaven. It's in your name we pray, amen. So as much as we don't like to talk about this in church, because in church we're supposed to be this, this people of faith, and it's always supposed to be about faith, if we're honest, with faith comes something called doubt. And sometimes, as believers, we experience doubt. And I think we're being dishonest if we say we don't ever experience doubt. We experience doubt for all kinds of reasons. We may experience doubt uh, because we encounter some kind of new information. And as we encounter this new information, we have to reconcile it with the Bible. And that, that may bring us to a period of doubt while we're searching and seeking to reconcile these things. Sometimes we experience doubt because um, we've gone through something very hard. You know, maybe we are personally suffering and experiencing pain. Maybe we have had great loss. Maybe we've observed the pain of someone else. And we wonder, how could a good God let this happen? And that makes us doubt but there's another reason we doubt, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Sometimes we doubt because there's something we really, really, really want to do that we know is wrong. And the Bible tells us it's wrong. But we have this desire to do it. And so we find ourselves at odds. Do I seek to reconcile this thing that the Bible says is wrong, or do I say what the Bible says and confess that my desire is sin. This brings us to doubt. Is it worth it? Is giving up this thing I desire worth it? Today we're going to talk about this last kind of doubt the most, the, really exclusively. The Bible is pretty clear about what is right and what is wrong and things that are sin. The commands of Scripture are usually pretty straightforward. Usually. Now, this word usually comes into play most often when God's commands come in conflict with something that we struggle with. Let me see if I can clarify that a little bit. Okay? So the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. There is a command that we're not supposed to be wrapped up in anxiety. Now, if you struggle with anxiety, then that command, that instruction, can seem quite difficult. And so what do we do with it? We begin to explain it away, right? We rationalize it. We reinterpret Scripture in order to justify this thing that we struggle with. Now, if we don't struggle with anxiety, we read it and we go, look, right here, it says, don't do this, right? Or perhaps if you struggle with pride, we know throughout Scripture over and over again we're instructed not to be prideful, but the world needs leaders, right? The world needs somebody to step up and take control, right? 
And so we begin to twist and, and maneuver Scripture in such a way that I can defend my pride and say, those commands don't apply to me. What if it's greed that you struggle with? Well, I mean, you know, money makes the world go round. My dad used to say the dirty little secret of ministry is that ministry costs money. And you know who knows that? People who know how to make money. They understand that money makes the world go round. So, you know, the Lord wants me to make as much money as I can so that I can give it to the Lord, right? You know, we think of these reasons, these ways that we defend our greedy heart. We twist Scripture in a way that makes us feel better. Now, see, here's the thing. Those of us who don't struggle with any of these areas, and I cherry-picked a few, and I, I, I did that on purpose, because if we don't struggle with those areas, then the Bible is clear on what is right and what is wrong and the things that are sin. Our doubts and struggles tend to emerge when what we want to defend, when we want to defend our preferred behaviors that come in conflict with the Bible. Let me say that again. Our doubts and struggles tend to emerge when we want to defend our preferred behaviors that come into conflict with the Bible. Now, as we move into Luke chapter 16, uh, as we move through the chapter of Luke chapter 16, Jesus is calling out the way that the Pharisees, the Pharisees leverage the law of Moses and the prophets. They have the scripture, and what they love to do is twist the scripture in order to defend their pet sins, their preferred behaviors. The Pharisees, as we've seen throughout the book of Luke and throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees struggle with pride and greed and selfishness. And so what they've done is they've reinterpreted the scriptures in a way that has let them justify their sin. Now here's the thing. We think in the 21st century that we are masters of reinterpreting the scriptures in order to justify sin. The fact of the matter is the Pharisees were far better at it than we are today, and they have been doing it. They did it for a lot longer. So nothing new is under the sun, right? People have been twisting the scriptures in order to justify their behavior for a long, long time. Here's the deal. When we doubt that God's ways are the best ways, when we doubt that God's ways are the best ways, we feel obligated to help him out, right? So we have to reinterpret Scripture in a way that helps us and people like us feel better. So we massage the Bible, we twist it in order to justify our bad behavior. So uh, we read part of this last week, but, but Luke gives us some teaching of Jesus between the parable of the dishonest manager, which is where we were last week, and the parable that we're going to discuss today, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And right in between these two parables, we have this chunk of teaching. And I think this chunk of teaching helps us understand how we're supposed to apply these two parables. So let's look at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. It says this, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, remember what we just say, they were, the, the Pharisees struggle with pride and greed and selfishness. So the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things. That's the parable of the dishonest manager, which we talked about last week. And they ridiculed him. 
Jesus. And he, Jesus, said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Put your finger there for a second. What that's saying is, you have twisted the scripture in order to justify your sin. And you all are good with this. But just because you're all good with this does not mean that what you're doing isn't an abomination before God. Just because you found loopholes in scripture does not mean that what you're doing is not an abomination. He continues, Jesus does, in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John, and that John is John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this passage is a bridge between these two parables that lets us know the theme that connects each of these parables. And that theme, in particular, is the love of money. But I might go ahead and take that one step further, and it's not just the love of money, but it's the love of meeting one's own desires. Okay, what's the theme that connects these two parables? It is the love of meeting one's own desires. And who loves to meet their own desires? Don't raise your hand. But like we all do, right? Right? That's the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of meeting your own desires, right? Okay, so that, that is it. The, the theme that connects these two passages is the love of meeting one's own desires. So let's see if I can explain why I think that Jesus is addressing this problem uh, in these, these verses. Let's look again at verses 16 and 17. Jesus identifies three areas of revelation. Three areas of revelation. That's the law of Moses, the prophets, and the good news of the kingdom of God being preached by John the Baptist. All right, These three areas of revelation are presented as equal and sufficient. This is enough. Okay? This is enough. Then Jesus clarifies that none of the law, or, or might I say any of the true revelation of God, none of the revelation of God will ever pass away. That's our, our staple, this point that we're anchoring in on here, is that none of the true revelation of God will ever pass away. In other words, no matter how hard we try to reinterpret the Scripture, the truth of the Scripture cannot be undone. Can I get an amen? Okay, so we can be wrong. Amen. We can be wrong, but God is always right. His word is always right. No matter how hard we try to justify our sin within the word of God, God's word remains true. It is us who is wrong. Okay, that is the fundamental thing we need to understand as we talk about this passage. God's word remains true. It cannot be undone. 
If, if anyone's wrong, it's not Scripture, it's us. Now, verse 16 mentions that, that everyone forces their way into the kingdom. Now, what on earth does this mean? Okay? Jesus isn't saying that people manipulate the Scripture and create a false way in. All right, what he's saying here is that to remain faithful to the true gospel is a struggle. It is hard. There are many forces that are opposed to the one true way of the kingdom of God. These things are actively working against us. And so those who come to the kingdom, they don't pry the door open and get their way in. Rather, they have to fight through all the resistance that the world is sending their way in order to persevere to the end. So when it talks about forcing their way in, it's not prying the door open. It's persevering through the resistance of the world, persevering through the resistance of those who are trying to reinterpret it to justify their sin. If we are going to persevere, we have to keep our eyes on the kingdom, focus, and and press on through all the resistance that is coming our way. So, uh, again, there are, there are people who want to twist the Bible and make it say what they want. There are people who want to justify their sin. But true followers of Christ resist these temptations and will fight against the assault on God's truth and persevere until they enter the kingdom. Now, look at the areas of, of sin that surround this point in our passage. Verse 14 says that what? The Pharisees loved money. Again, we kind of talked about that last week. And verse 18 says that they have a perverse view of marriage and divorce. Now, I want to quickly speak to verse 18 since we talked about the love of money last week. Luke uses Jesus' statement on divorce here to make a point. The purpose of placing these comments on divorce here in this text is to give us an example of how the Pharisees twisted the Scripture to justify the outcome that they wanted. This teaching in verse 18 should not be seen as a final summary of Jesus' teaching on divorce. Matthew 19 gives us a much greater insight for that, but honestly, even that is not a full and total uh, biblical teaching on divorce. So rather, what we're seeing here in verse 18 is a quick hit to say that a legal divorce does not absolve you from the the sin of adultery. Okay? Verse 18 is a quick hit to say that legal divorce does not absolve you from the sin of adultery. Now, what are we talking about? As we look at this text, as we look at this passage, what's going on? We're seeing that the Pharisees, these masters of the law, have come up with all kinds of loopholes to justify sinful behavior. And then we get this example. And so what what Luke is doing as he uses his teaching of Jesus here is he is helping us understand another loophole, another loophole that the Pharisees have used to defend their lust. So let me see if I can explain this a little bit to you guys to make it a little more clear. Let's say you have this man. His name is, I don't know, Jake. And Jake is married to Alice. And Jake uh, works with Sally. But Sally is also married. She's married to a guy named, I don't know, Ted. All right. So Jake and Sally work together, and they're both married to other people, but they find themselves attracted to each other. Now, Jake and Sally are good Jews. They're good Christians, if you will. 
and they would never have an affair. So they have this idea. Why don't you get a divorce from Ted, and I'll get a divorce from Alice. Then we're in the clear. Then we can get married. Poof, no sin. We're both divorced, we can get married. Jesus says, that is dumb. That is still adultery. You cannot leverage the law, you cannot leverage the law to justify your lust. Okay, do you see that? Just, just as he's saying, be careful on the love of money, don't twist the law when it comes to money, all of these earthly desires that we have, we can't twist the law in order to justify them. What do we submit to? As followers of Christ, God's word is sufficient. No matter how hard we try, not one stroke of the pen in the law will ever become undone. So what is our job as followers of Jesus? If we're going to follow Jesus, then we have to follow the scriptures as they have been revealed. If we are reinterpreting scripture to justify our sin, then we're not really following the Lord. I'm going to say that again. If we are reinterpreting scripture to justify our sin, then we're not really following the Lord. In fact, you're following your sin. And you're following yourself. So we come into the kingdom of God by trusting the way that he revealed to come into the kingdom. Our best efforts to justify our sin and sneak into the kingdom will not work. Sin is sin, despite our attempts to say it's not. All attempts to get into the eternal kingdom of God by any other means will fail. The law, the prophets, the preaching of the kingdom of God are all that we need to find the way into the kingdom. So with this understanding, from, from this point in the passage, we're going to enter the parable of, rich man, of the rich man and Lazarus. So let me restate what I just said, because it's the, the whole point of the parable is this. All attempts to get into the eternal kingdom of God by any other means then what God has revealed through Scripture will fail. So I could simply say it in the positive. There's only one way to heaven, and that's the way it's been revealed in God's Word. So the parable of the rich man and Lazarus provides four principles for entering the kingdom of God. Okay, four principles for entering the kingdom of God. And here they are. If you don't believe the Scripture... Nothing else will convince you. Number two, earthly wealth and earthly power do not give you earthly authority. Number three, earthly poverty and earthly suffering do not disqualify you from the kingdom of God. And number four, our earthly decisions are final. Now, with this all in mind, let's read the parable 
of the rich man and Lazarus. And for clarification, this Lazarus here is not the same Lazarus from John chapter 11. This is not the friend of Jesus. This is a made-up Lazarus. So just like I made up names for my parable that I gave earlier about marriage and divorce, Jesus just gives the guy a name and he picked Lazarus. Maybe because he has a friend named Lazarus. I don't know, but it's not the same guy, okay? So let's go ahead and jump into Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, heaven, the kingdom of God. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, What? What did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, let's look at our first principle of entering the kingdom of God. If you don't believe the scriptures, nothing will convince you. So we're beginning with the, uh, the end of the parable because this is Jesus' big point. So we started the message today by discussing doubt, particularly how doubt can creep into our lives when the Bible teaches us to do or believe something that we don't want to do. I showed you how the Pharisees tried to justify their greed and their lust. And at the end of the day, they didn't believe what the scripture actually taught about money or about marriage. When we come to Jesus for salvation, here's the thing. We're saying that we follow him. When we come to Jesus for salvation, we're saying that we follow him. We're saying his ways are our ways. We're saying he is the boss of our life. So when he tells us that something is bad for us and we shouldn't do it, then we need to believe him. That's what calling him Lord means, right? 
He's the boss. He gets to say what's right and wrong. And if he says it's bad for us, then we should trust him. So if we constantly ignore his instructions, if we constantly are saying that Jesus didn't really mean what he said, or if we're changing his instructions in order to justify our behavior, then the question comes, are we truly following Jesus? Paul actually addresses this very issue in Romans chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. 16 through 18. Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I mean, like, Paul literally addresses what we're talking about here. You, you, can, you can twist and maneuver Scripture, but all you're doing when you do that is becoming a slave to sin. Why are you a slave to sin? You're such a slave to sin that you're going to twist Scripture to fit whatever you want it to. You're a slave to whoever you obey. And if it's your sin, then it commands you. It commands you so much, you're willing to change what the Bible says in order to justify your behavior. Or, if you are a slave to God's Word, then you're going to walk in faith no matter what it says, even if it steps in your toes even if it tells you you're wrong, even if it calls you to hard things, even if it challenges you at your very core, because you're a slave to it. Listen, Paul says that believers have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And what is that standard of teaching? It is the law. It is the prophet's. And it is the preaching of the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ. That is what they have been committed to. Paul's whole point here is that as followers of Jesus, we are slaves to the word of God. We bend to it. It does not bend to us. It challenges us and stretches us. It tells us when we're wrong. We don't get to twist scripture to fit our desires our desires become Christ's as we are conformed and transformed by the word of God. The rich man thought that if Lazarus could just go back and tell his family that they would believe. But Jesus, through the voice of Abraham in the parable, says that someone could raise from the dead and they won't, if they won't believe Moses, if they won't believe the prophets, then it doesn't matter they're not even going to believe someone who rose from the dead. Who do you think he means there in the end? Who's going to raise from the dead? They're not even going to believe Jesus if Jesus himself raises from the dead. 
If you are brazen enough to twist the scriptures, then you have no problem ignoring or explaining away someone who rose from the dead. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like the Pharisees? If they're brazen enough to reinterpret and twist the scriptures, then it's not that hard to ignore or explain away even someone raising from the dead. But somehow, before he died, the rich man in the parable seems to have believed that he was going to be okay. And that somehow, by some means of his life, he he felt like he should have made it to heaven. I feel like in the parable, the rich man is surprised to find himself in hell. But we shouldn't be surprised that he might have thought that. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says this, Every way of the man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Man, man, every way of the man seems right in his own eyes, but the Lord knows the heart. And this brings us to the the second principle of entering the kingdom of God. Earthly wealth and earthly power do not give you eternal authority. And here's what I mean by that. If we're used to making all the the decisions and having all the power and all the clout and being able to command so-and-so to do such-and-such at our very whim, then we're used to having a high level of authority. We're used to things bending to our will. But when it comes to the eternal truths of God, when we find ourselves on the other side, does that authority carry any weight in eternity? Zero. Zero. What I love about this parable is this rich man who's used to ordering people about can't even give Lazarus orders anymore. He just wants some relief. Abraham, can you please have Lazarus go and dip his finger in some water and touch it to my tongue and bring me some relief, right? Like, it is this idea here that he still has some kind of authority. Could could you send Lazarus back to tell my family? What's the answer to both of those things? No. What is the level of this guy's authority in eternity? It is zero. He has no authority over anyone, nor does he have authority over truth. When we find ourselves on the other side of eternity, no matter what we think in this lifetime, we have no authority. Man, this this is the problem with relative truth. We think in this world we can just live our own truth. We think we can twist things, manipulate them in order to justify a world that suits us. We can build a world of great pleasure where we meet all of our desires. But when we find ourselves on the other side of eternity, standing before God, do we have the ability to say, yeah, but I said this was okay. The Lord says, but I did not. Any authority that we think we have for eternity is an illusion. And if we find ourselves on the other side of eternity, trusting in our authority, the rich man shows us just how far that authority goes. And it goes nowhere. See, he was trusting in his earthly wealth, his earthly power. Verse 25 says this, But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. 
all your twisting and all your justifying brought about the best that it could offer. And when you died, all those good things died with you. He had no authority in the other side of eternity. This same verse continues. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. He received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. We see this contrast here. And this brings us to the third principle for entering the kingdom of God. Earthly poverty and earthly suffering do not disqualify you from heaven. Man, just because, just because you are lowly and have no authority here on earth. And even though you wish you could change things so that your life would be better and easier and you're powerless to do that, that lack of power here on earth has no bearing in your eternal reality. The way it's presented here is that that the poor man, though he suffered, took God at his word and believed what the scriptures said about God. And so even though he was powerless and suffering in this world, when he entered into the next, because his faith was in the revelation of God, the way that God said he should come into the kingdom, he persevered, though the forces of the outside world were opposed to him, he forced his way into the kingdom by persevering in the truth. Everything was against him, and yet he was able to persevere. I think this is why Jesus says that it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. And just think about this for a second, okay? Think about the difference between the rich man and the poor man. And I think for most of us, we probably find it easier to relate to the poor man than the rich man. But I want to challenge that thinking for just a quick moment. Where we find ourselves in 21st century America, no matter where you are on our socioeconomic platform, you are wealthy compared to the rest of the world historically. Not just presently, but historically. Just think about where even our poor are. Okay? Clean, access to clean water. That's a big deal. As I found out in El Salvador, access to clean water is a big deal. Okay? Also, access to food. I know that some people, even our poor, struggle with hunger, but we have access to food regularly. Do you have more than one change of clothes? Do you have some kind of roof over your head? Like, these are things that, I'm not even talking about electricity and entertainment, right? I mean, these are things that globally, historically, make even the poor in 21st century America wealthy compared to history. Okay. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because, honestly, I think all of us have more in common with the rich man than with the poor man. In our culture, we have a means to deceive ourselves into being independent from God. Look at what I'm able to do. Look at what I'm able to accomplish. God is a nice crutch for the weak, but I am strong. And that elevated sense of pride 
begins to give us a false sense of authority. But here we see a poor man, a poor man who doesn't even have his health. And we see that in his poverty and in his suffering, he's in a better position to see his need for God and to not be deceived enough into thinking he has some kind of authority over his own life. Man, should we find ourselves as desperate as that poor man where we can see our need and begin to conform our will to his rather than be deceived enough into thinking that God must somehow be lowered to conforming to our will. This brings us to the fourth point of entering the kingdom of God, and that is our earthly decision is final. Our earthly decision is final. Let's look back at the parable, moving from 25 to verse 26. Abraham continues, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, as we come to this parable, I think we have to be careful not overstating what this passage actually says about heaven and hell. Like we talked about last week, the parables of Jesus generally only make one key point. Okay, that means we have to be cautious if we start pulling out a second point, okay? So Jesus is not coming to this parable trying to give us a complete theological teaching on hell, okay? But what he is talking about is that Scripture is sufficient to show us the way to the kingdom. He's talking about Scripture's sufficiency for eternal realities, which means what he says about eternal realities is something that we can glean from this parable, Okay, so what does Jesus tell us? Fundamentally, what Jesus is saying here is that when you die, you will either the king, enter the kingdom of God or you will not. Fundamentally, this parable teaches that when you die, you will either enter the kingdom of God or you will not. So, we should first recognize that Jesus presents two realities of life after death. There is a place of agony, and there is a place of comfort. And this place of agony is such that the rich man wants to warn his family. The place of agony is not the kingdom of God. The place of comfort is the kingdom of God. Second, there is a chasm between these two destinations. And it's so large that those in heaven can not go to hell for any reason. Neither can those in hell cross to heaven. Now, is this parable teaching that there will actually be an observable chasm between heaven and hell? I don't know. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But what, what is it teaching? You can't go from one to the other. That is certain. That is how this is Presented, the chasm shows that our destination is permanent. Third, the rich man seems to recognize that he missed the truth revealed in Scripture. Why do I think that? Because he says, send Lazarus back to tell my family. He recognizes that he missed it. And he knows now, after Abraham explains it to him, that it's too late. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die, and you receive your judgment. And you have one of two destinations. Those who believe in the revelation of God on how to come to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ enter into the kingdom. Those who do not believe do not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And by default, what is that reality? That is the place of agony, the place of torment and anguish. There is absolutely no indication that the rich man will someday be able to come to heaven. He has died and received his judgment. Even though the rich man seems to understand that he, misses, he missed the way to heaven, the parable doesn't even hint that somehow he will be able to someday find his way into the kingdom. What we believe in this life determines our eternal reality. What we believe in this life determines our eternal reality. Now, there's probably this part of us that thinks that this is unfair. We, we might be tempted to say, I don't have enough information to make that kind of decision. We might be tempted to say, if I just had another miracle or a message from heaven, then I could know. But Jesus addresses that in this parable. He says that even if somebody came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And like I said earlier, this is a little hint at his own resurrection that the religious leaders of his day denied. They didn't believe Moses. How do we know they didn't believe Moses? They twisted it. They didn't believe the prophets. How do we know that? They twisted it. They didn't believe, the Moses, they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, and they didn't believe the resurrection either. Similarly, back in Luke chapter 11, the people asked Jesus for a sign. And Jesus says he's not going to give them another sign. He says the only sign that he will give them is the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? It is the preaching of God's word to the lost world that once Nineveh heard the preaching, what they do? They repented. What's the sign of Jonah? It is hearing the word of God and the word of God having enough authority that the people repented. God's word is sufficient for salvation. Man, that's exciting. We have enough. We don't need more. And we deceive ourselves if we think if we just received a little more, then we would believe. If you don't believe with what you have, Jesus makes it clear, even if you had more, you wouldn't believe. The word of God is truly enough. And hear me, church, if it's truly enough, then don't mess with it. Don't twist it. If it's enough for salvation, don't make it fit your desires. Instead, let your desires conform to with what the good things God is teaching us. In the word, we have enough. It may step on our toes, but Paul says this, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Man, look at that. What's that say? What's the word good for? Correction. 
for reproof. What's that mean? It's going to tell you when you're wrong. You don't get to say when it's wrong. It's sufficient. Trust it. Trust it. It is for your good. Jesus uh, tells us that, that following him is not easy. Being bent to the word of God costs us. So he says this back in Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus means laying down our desires. It means dying to our selfishness. It means laying down our pride, taking up our cross and following him. Jesus continues in verse 33. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. How far are we supposed to follow Jesus? To the point that we lay it all down. When we follow Jesus, we are saying, I want it your way. Not because God needs to control his robot humans, okay? But because following his way is for our good. Listen to how John introduces Jesus in the first Christmas story, the incarnation of Jesus in John chapter 1. As he continues in verse 4, he says, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. What's light do? Reveals. It shows us. In him was life, and life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember we talked about forcing our way into the kingdom? Everything is against us and we persevere. The darkness of the world does not overcome the light of Christ. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. The way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I love how, how John talks about Jesus and what he came to do. He came to bring life. In fact, he comes to keep us from the plans of enemy, the enemy and steer us toward life. John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, Jesus, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. When we follow Jesus, when we walk in his ways, when we say no to the things he say no to, and we say yes to the things that he says yes to, it's not because he's trying to take away good things from us. He's trying to keep us from the harm of sin. And he is calling us to a life, a life of abundance. That may not be wealth. I mean, listen, look at the life of Lazarus. The life of Lazarus was rough. He longed to have the wealth, the kind of abundance that earthly riches brought. He was hungry, and he was annoyed that these dogs kept licking his sores. But who had true abundant life? Was it the rich man, or was it Lazarus? Lazarus had true abundant life. And when we begin to think that what this world has to provide is ultimate, we will do whatever we can to gain this world for ourselves. And what comes at the end of a life centered on gaining as much world as possible? 
agony, death, and torment. Instead, he has called us to life abundant, where we say no to the things of this world and persevere in the ways of God that we may have true life for eternity in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the gift of Christmas. What does Jesus come to offer? He he stepped out of eternity. He clothed himself in humanity. He had an earthly life that was far more like Lazarus's than like the rich man in order that through his death and resurrection, the perfect son of God died and rose from the dead that by faith in that, we may have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is the one way to heaven. That is what his scripture reveals. And if we're going to follow him into heaven, then that means we follow him in the ways we live on earth. We say yes to the things of the Lord, and we say no to the things of the world. That was a long one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord, for the sufficiency of your word. You have given us the law and the prophets and the preaching of the kingdom through the apostles in the New Testament. Lord, I pray that we would turn to your word and not only look at it for how to find eternity, but how to live each day as a follower of Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to twist the scriptures to justify our sin, but help us, Lord, to submit to your word that we may see it as the source of life and life more abundant. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, Tyler, can we just do one song? I went a little long.